businesses to our schools, from businesses to necklaces, from t-shirts to tattoos. The symbol of the cross seems to be everywhere in America. If you get down to the Bible Belt, as you're driving along the highway, you'll often see large wooden crosses on hills beside the highway. Here in Boston, elaborate, expensive-looking crosses adorn the tops of churches. Christians, it seems, are, are quite happy to be known as people of the cross, to display the cross. But the cross, of course, wasn't always viewed this way. Uh, the earliest known depiction that we have of the cross related to Christianity is actually one of derision and scorn. It's graffiti. Uh, from around 200 AD, we find a picture of a donkey-headed man on a cross and a little boy beneath it. And the inscription reads, Alexamenos worships his God. You see the scorn and the mockery from the Roman world. I mean, gods were supposed to be strong and powerful, not suffering and dying defeating their enemies, not succumbing to them. And so the notion of a crucified God, a crucified king, well, that was patently absurd. To the Romans, to the world, the cross was a scandal, not a boast. This morning, in our second to last sermon in Mark's gospel, we come to the very crucifixion of the Son of God. We come to Mark 15, so let me encourage you to turn there now. We'll be in verses 1 to 32. This whole time, these past 23 weeks, we've been asking the question that Mark has wanted us to be asking, which is, who is Jesus? In chapter 1, we saw God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. And then in the succeeding 14 chapters, we've seen Jesus authoritatively heal and teach and work miracles. He's astounded the crowds, infuriated the religious leaders, and shown mercy to the miserable. Uh, though many thought he was merely an impressive prophet or a powerful miracle worker, in chapter 8, he decisively revealed himself as the Christ, the King of Israel. He's also the suffering son of man, he says, who calls his followers to take up their crosses and follow him. Both his kingship and his suffering, well, they were coming true. They were on full display upon his arrival in Jerusalem. A few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus is the Passover lamb who inaugurates the new covenant in his blood. And just last week, we saw Jesus pray in the garden of Gethsemane, submitting to his heavenly father's will and drinking, preparing to drink the cup of God's wrath uh, before he was betrayed and arrested and declared his own divine identity to the Jewish religious leaders. Thus we arrive at our passage this morning in chapter 15. We'll have two points and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus is Israel's king enthroned on the cross. Jesus is Israel's king enthroned on the cross. So read with me, beginning Mark 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. 
And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who's coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Amen. Well, our first point this morning is found in verses 1 to 15, entitled, The King Condemned. You notice in verse 1 that Jesus has already been tried by the religious leaders, by the Jewish court, and now he's being brought, being handed over to Pilate. Uh, The religious leaders thought Jesus was deserving of death, but they didn't have the authority to actually execute him, so they bring him to Pilate. What's noteworthy here is how Pilate receives no title, no introduction, no explanation at all. It's as if Mark assumed that his audience knew who Pilate was. Like if somebody asked you, "Uh, did you catch Biden's speech last night? You don't need an explanation of who Biden is. You know that. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 6 mentions Jesus before Pilate. And then the Apostles' Creed, what Christians have confessed for some 1,800 years, perhaps, uh, names Pilate as well. 
how and why did this Roman ruler gain such prominence to be mentioned in all the Gospels, uh, to be mentioned in 1 Timothy, to be mentioned in the Apostles' Creed? Why have we been remembering Pilate for the last 1,800 years? I think there's two reasons. Uh, first, his treacherous actions were infamous. He was a coward who condemned Jesus for political expediency. But second, Pilate was remembered because Jesus really did stand before him. Uh, put it another way, the Christian message, the gospel, is not some made-up myth which took place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, it actually really happened in time and space, such that you can date it according to the political rulers of the time. Now, the takeaway for you and me is simple. When we are reading Mark 15, we are reading history, not legend. And so notice what Pilate asks in verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? Here we begin the recurring theme in our passage. Six times in these 32 verses, Jesus will be mentioned as the king of the Jews. He'll be mocked as such. Uh, the whole passage orients around the theme of Jesus' kingship. This is, of course, what Jesus himself had affirmed at the end of chapter 14, right? So perhaps just turn back a page. In verse 61, the high priest, who was uh, Israel's highest religious and political figure, asked, are you the Christ, that is the king, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In chapter 14, Jesus made two confessions before the chief priest. Number one, I am Israel's Christ. I am the king of Israel. Number two, he claimed to be much more than that. He claimed to be the I am of Israel. The Lord, he, he named and appropriated to himself the very name of God, Yahweh, I am, before the religious leaders. And it was this claim to divinity, not necessarily with the religious leaders, his, Jesus' political views or his views on Rome or his views on even them. It was this assertion of his own divine identity which earned him the death sentence. But of course, what did a Roman governor care with a Jewish religious dispute about who God is. It seems here in chapter 15, the religious leaders have said to Pilate that this Jesus claimed to be king. And it was that point that would, of course, been a threat to the Roman ruling class. That's why Jesus responds cryptically in verse 2. You have said so to Pilate's question. It's not a direct affirmation but neither is it a denial. So the chief priests lob more accusations in verse three before Pilate asks in verse four, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. We saw this last week. Why was Jesus silent before his accusers? The answer is twofold, right? Number one, his whole point, his whole mission was to head to the cross. So it didn't make a lot of sense for him to defend himself publicly in court. But number two, it was to fulfill what Margaret read for us earlier. It was to fulfill Isaiah 53, 
Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As we see throughout this chapter, Jesus is the fulfillment of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the one who's come to redeem his people by bearing their transgressions and sins and iniquities. He's the one who's come to suffer in their place. He's the one that's come to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. All this was coming true as Jesus stood before Pilate. Now in verse 6, we learn that Pilate had this custom of releasing one prisoner during the Passover feast for the Jews. And so when the crowd asks Pilate to release a prisoner, you see that he responds in verse 9, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now obviously Pilate doesn't actually think Jesus is the king of the Jews. Otherwise he wouldn't let him go, right? But he does recognize Jesus' innocence. Right? That's why verse 10 says, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. I mean, this is incredible, right? The chief priests are those who are devoted to the law of God. They are from the people of God. They exist to promote the purposes of God. And so you'd think that when the Christ, the Messiah, comes on the scene, they would be celebrating Jesus' success, right? Uh, you think they would be rejoicing that the king has finally come. Instead, they were furious. Instead, they were envious. Brothers and sisters, beware of envy. Beware of growing bitter at the success of others. Beware of coveting what you don't have instead of celebrating what other people do have. Uh, the religious leaders are a warning to us. After Pilate asks who the crowd wants released, verse 11 says, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Now, Barabbas is a bad dude, right? You see that in verse 7. We get three descriptors of the guy, and they're all really depraved. They're all really bad. In verse 7, he's among the rebels in prison, he has committed murder, and he was in the insurrection. This dude was a bad dude. And yet the crowd asks for Barabbas to go free. What should be done with Jesus, Pilate asks? Crucify him, they shout. Crucify him. The crowd which had surrounded Jesus for so many chapters throughout Mark has now been whipped into an uproar, demanding his death. How quickly and how fickle the human heart turns away. And so verse 15, let's conclude with three observations about verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Three observations here. Number one, notice what motivates Pilate. If for Judas it was greed, 
and the religious leaders. It was envy for Pilate. It was a desire to satisfy the crowd. It was a desire to live for the approval of others. It's the fear of man. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we've seen this before. We've said this before, but the fear of man is a snare. If you're going to live for the approval of others, you are ever going to be at their beck and call. You will have no peace. You will have, have no freedom. You will be enslaved to the opinions of others. And you will be just a moment away from sinning grievously to win the approval of others. You'll be open to the peer pressure, as it were. I, I mean, it's kind of funny if it weren't so sad. The sins we commit in grade school are the ones that we commit the rest of our lives, right? It's not like we grow out of loving the opinions of others. It's endemic to the human heart. We want others' approval. We live for their approval. Pilate here makes himself an accomplice to murder because he cowered before the opinions of others. May God give us grace to be holy and bold before others, no matter the consequences. Second, what in the world is Barabbas doing in this story? He kind of comes out of left field, right? We're tracking about Jesus and the disciples, the chief priests and Pilate, and then we get this insurrectionist. What's the point of Mark, you know, inserting this information here? Why did he include it? I think it's twofold. First, uh, it's to highlight the fact that the chief priests have literally aligned themselves with a murderer rather than the Holy One of God. Uh, They've kind of shown their true colors, as it were, that they're aligning themselves with a murderer rather than the innocent Son of God. They condemn their very own king but approve of a murderer. And second, Barnabas, sir, Barabbas rather, serves as a kind of living parable, similar to the blind man of chapter 8 who had his eyes opened in different stages. Uh, so here in the story of Barabbas, we find a significance much greater than the mere surface. You remember that all this is taking place during the festival of the Passover, We considered this two weeks ago. The Passover festival was the yearly reminder of what happened in Exodus 12. It was the yearly reenactment of how the Lord had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt uh, through the remembrance of a sacrificial lamb that died instead of the firstborn son. It was the picture of an innocent substitute taking away the judgment of another. And so it's at that festival that Pilate is regularly, yearly, freeing one undeserving prisoner. That freed prisoner gets passed over, as it were, released from judgment. And so here, I think, we get a parable, a living parable, as it were, that gets to the heart of the gospel. Though Barabbas was a notorious sinner deserving of punishment with crimes commensurate with crucifixion, Jesus was innocent, totally innocent. The chief priests couldn't dig up any dirt on him. You remember they're like bringing in false witnesses. They don't even agree about it. 
Jesus is so innocent, nobody can find anything that he's done wrong. And yet, Jesus goes to the cross while Barabbas walks free. Jesus gets treated the way Barabbas deserves. Meanwhile, Barabbas gets treated the way Jesus deserves. He goes totally free while Jesus gets condemned. Friends, that's the gospel. That you and I, sinners though we are, can walk free and escape the judgment and punishment of God that our sins deserve. That you and I can be treated as if we had lived the perfect and holy life of Jesus. If you are a Christian on judgment day, you are going to be given credit for all the good things Jesus did. That's crazy. Think about how loving and merciful and just and righteous and benevolent and generous he was. Think about all the good things he did. And on judgment day, that righteousness is accredited to you, Holly. Not because of anything you've done, but because that is the gospel, the substitutionary work of Christ. We get credit for what he did. Meanwhile, he gets the blame for all that we have done. He walks to the cross. Christ endured the punishment that we deserve. On the cross, Jesus is treated as if he had lived our lives of iniquity and transgression. Christ is the Passover lamb, the innocent substitute that we need. Sometimes theologians refer to this as the great exchange. Christ gets our sin, we get his righteousness. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, praise God. What's the application to that? Praise God. Enjoy the fact that you are saved not by your works. Rest in the fact that it is our faith and it is grace by which we are saved and our sins are thrown into the depths of the sea. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that's what we want you to believe. That's what we want you to understand and accept that you can have your sins forgiven if you but turn to Christ. And so third and Finally, on verse 15, who sent Jesus to the cross? Certainly Judas and the chief priests and Pilate and the Roman guards. And yet, they were the human actors in 33 AD conspiring, putting Jesus to death. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Jesus all along had willed to go to the cross. Why? Well, it's as we've just said, to die for our sins. It was our sins that led Christ to the cross. If you and I had not rebelled against God, Christ would have no need for the cross. If you and I had lived as God intended us to live, as Adam and Eve should have lived. Jesus would not have been headed to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath. 
But it is what we read earlier in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so make no mistake, as much as it was Judas and the chief priests and Pilate and the Roman guards, it was our sin that held him there. We were the ones who put him on that tree. As we so often sing, behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Here's how 18th century New England pastor Jonathan Edwards put it. Uh, He's reflecting on the fact of the sins, the particularities of the sins committed in his day are representative of the sins we all commit. He says, the sin of crucifying Christ seems to have been designed of God to be a representative of the sin of mankind in general. The sin of mankind was that which slew Christ, for he bore our sins. It was our sin that stood against him. This was the enemy that was so cruel to him, that nailed him to the cross, that pierced his side and let out his heart's blood. We who have sinned, that he came into the world to the redeem, are the crucifiers of Christ. And yet, even that is not the end of the story. You notice in verse 15 how the ESV says that Pilate delivered him to be crucified. It's the same verb as in verse 1 when the religious leaders deliver him to Pilate. It's the same verb as in chapter 14 throughout, which is translated as betrayer. For example, in verses 41 and 42 and 44. Here we see the human agent at work in Jesus' headed to crucifixion. Those who handed Jesus over to death, from Judas, the religious leaders, or Pilate, They are all morally culpable for their roles. We are morally culpable for our role in the death of Christ. And yet this was more than just human evil come to fruition. This was the plan of Almighty God. For Romans 8.32 states, He who did not spare his own son, but who gave him up, for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give him all things? The verb behind the father's action is the same. It is he who handed his son over. He who delivered up his son to death. And so brothers and sisters, were the human agents to blame? Absolutely. The cross, however, was not a human accident. It was the divine destiny. It was Jesus' plan fulfilled. Each time Jesus was handed over, moving closer and closer to his martyrdom, we see the hand of our gracious heavenly father working all things for our salvation. As the British preacher Octavius Winslow famously put it, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, Not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Brothers and sisters, again, praise God. When you see the whipping and the torture and the death of Christ on the cross, see not only the wickedness of human rebellion, but see the love of our triune God displayed. Let's turn now to our second section in verses 16 to 32, entitled, The King Enthroned. 
In these final verses, we're going to see the devastating irony in all that is happening. Mark shows us this irony. He, he plays it up. He draws attention to it because it shows the absurdity of what's going on. It drives the point home that much more. That's what irony does, right? I can remember in my freshman dorm, there was a common room that had these big wooden tables that had seen tens of thousands of students come through, and there was graffiti all over them carved into the tables. There's one particular graffiti uh, that said, there are three things I hate. One, vandalism. Two, lists. Three, irony. Well, irony shows us the absurdity of what's happening. They'll be on the lookout. It's especially pronounced in verses 16 to 19. The Roman guards lead Jesus into the, into the palace where the battalion was quartered. These are the elite Roman guards. And look at verse 17. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. You see all the regal irony, don't you? First, they dress him in a cloak that's purple. This was the color of royalty because of how rare and expensive it was. Then they put on the crown of thorns, which only a king would wear. They cry out, hail king of the Jews. And then finally, they kneel down in homage to him. I mean, the irony is, is just painful, isn't it? The guards here are doing exactly what they should be doing, ascribing royalty and honor and praise to King Jesus, but entirely in mockery and scorn. They prove that the guards, that Judas and the religious leaders and Pilate and the disciples and the crowds, they had all misunderstood Jesus's kingship. You see, they thought that a suffering king was an oxymoron, like clean dirt, jumbo shrimp. They just didn't go together. Yet what they failed to see is that Jesus's suffering is precisely what qualified him for kingship in God's kingdom. This is what true kingship is all about. True greatness, service, and humility, sacrifice, and love. That's what they didn't get. It's what Jesus had described to his disciples in chapter 10. He said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Beloved, this is what Jesus had come to do. While the guards were mocking Jesus for his apparently non-royal status, they were in fact validating and qualifying Jesus for the very role, king of Israel, king of the world. For God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, right? 
His values are different than the world's values. It's an upside-down kingdom, where the first are last and the last are first. Brothers and sisters, in the church, in Trinity Church of Bedford, if you want to be great like King Jesus, lay your life down in the service of others. Uh, Pursue humble service for the good of others. That is what true greatness is like in the kingdom. Yet the guards and so many others failed to notice this. So we read in verse 20 that they put his original clothes back on and led him out to crucify him. What was crucifixion and why did the Romans do it? Well, it was the worst of all deaths for the worst of all criminals. The famous Roman orator Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and disgusting penalty and said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion uh, the most wretched of deaths. It was an unusually pleasant, unpleasant death. In crucifixion, the criminal was usually roped, but sometimes nailed to the cross beams of wood. It was a slow death, would often take days to complete. Uh, What made it particularly excruciating was that the victim would die by drowning in their own blood in their lungs. It was the worst imaginable death. That's where Jesus was headed. In verse 21, we read that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Here we get another one of those delightful little gems in Mark's gospel. You remember in chapter 10 how Mark had introduced, introduced blind Bartimaeus initially as the son of Timaeus. Well, here it seems that Mark's readers know this Simon of Cyrene because they know his boys. They know Alexander and Rufus. That's why Mark brings them up. Mark is not trying to concoct an epic, mythical fable. He's recording the facts of history. His point is, this really, really happened. And if you have doubts, just go ask Alex and Rufus. Their dad carried Jesus' cross. This is metaphorically what Christ had called all his disciples to in chapter 8. In verse 834, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, here we see that fulfilled, but with one small difference. What does it mean, Christian, for you to take up your cross? It means that you follow Jesus and take up his cross. It means that you live as though it's better to suffer than to sin. It's that you live as though the first will be last and the last will be first. It's to endure persecution and abandonment for the sake of the gospel. It's that you live for the blessing and benefit of others, not for self. If you would follow Christ, you too must take up his cross. And so they take Jesus to Golgotha, 
which is generally a bad sign if anyone forces you ever to go to a place called the place of the skull. In verse 23, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. It's likely served as a painkiller. And so Jesus refuses it. He doesn't take the easy way out. The dividing of Jesus' garments, the casting of lots for them, it's a fulfillment of Psalm 22, which we'll consider next week more fully. And in verse 26 we read, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Uh, This language is very particular. It's the exact same language from chapter 10. When James and John had come to Jesus, you remember they said, we want you to do something for us. We want to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. They thought Jesus was headed for ease and comfort and recognition in Jerusalem. They thought Jesus was headed for glory in Jerusalem. What they didn't imagine is that Christ was headed to the cross. And yet, the disciples were kind of right. Because here at the cross, Jesus is seated in his glory. If he were establishing a Gentile kingdom, if he were coming to be a ruler like the rest of the rulers on the earth, the cross would be shameful. But he had not come to establish the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God. And so the cross was not a shame. It was the boast of Christ. For at the cross, he is reigning in his glory as the king of Israel. He is reigning as king from the throne of a bloody cross. Friend, if you want to sit at Jesus' right hand in glory or left hand, you too need to take up your cross because the glory is where the cross is. And the cross is where true glory is. This comes so unnaturally to us, doesn't it? Uh, We all long for comfort and ease and power and influence and public applause We're attracted to the bigger, the more grandiose, the seemingly obviously impressive. And yet Jesus' whole life and ministry culminating in his crucifixion tell a different story. Friends, if the cross is Christ's glory, shouldn't it be ours as well? Shouldn't we boast in the cross? What is the most amazing thing about Jesus? What is the most amazing thing he did? Well, Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Friends, it's not just the incarnation that is Christ's glory. It is his cross. That is the culmination of his service and suffering. And thus, that is the culmination of his splendor and majesty. 
That's what makes Jesus so deserving of worldwide fame and adoration. And so, friends, just as the most impressive thing about Christ is his cross, well, if you're a Christian here this morning, the most amazing thing about you, the most tell your friends and family, this is exciting, you'll never believe it, it's not something you have done. It's not how many degrees you have. It's not your income or your title. It's not how physically fit you are. It's not how many friends you have. It's not how successful your business is. It's nothing in you. The most amazing thing about you, if you're a Christian, is what has been done for you. What Christ has done for you at the cross. At the cross, there's no room for pride or boasting or ego. As we sang last week, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is just another way of saying Galatians 6, where Paul says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Christian, what are you tempted to boast about? What are you tempted to find your glory in? Do you find greatness and glory in your own accomplishments or in what Christ has accomplished for you? And so notice verse 29. As we come to the end of our passage, I'll translate it a little more literally. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, the irony is rich and painful. In chapter 14, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes accused Jesus of blasphemy when he asserted himself to be the I am of Israel. And yet here, the Son of God incarnate is dying for the sins of the world, and people don't respond with love and wonder, joy and faith, but they blaspheme him and revile him. We'll consider next week exactly what it means for Jesus to destroy the temple. Uh, but the irony is that here at the cross, Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do. He's destroying the old religious system, the old way of doing things. Yet the religious leaders in the crowd understood none of that. That's why they say in verse 30, mockingly, save yourself and come down from the cross. You see, that's what you and I would do, isn't it? If we had the power to save our own skins, that's what we would do. Yet praise be to God, Jesus didn't think about saving himself. He chose to stay up on the cross. And so our passage comes to an astounding end in verses 31 and 32. Look there. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Okay, friends, the irony reaches a crescendo in their statement there in verses 31 and 32. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Friends, is that true? Yes, it is. He cannot save himself and save others. 
For Jesus to save his people, he could not save himself. He had to remain on the cross. He had saved many others before. We've seen it in these past 15 chapters. And here his saving work came to a climax. And they could not see it. They thought, show us, let us see and we'll believe. Oh, but that was not the problem. Not for lack of evidence did they fail to trust. The problem was that they did not look for, they did not want a suffering Messiah. They wanted a king just like the nations. So brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice that Christ did not save himself, but he saved you on the cross. If you would but see his greatness for what it truly is, and if you would believe. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice. We praise you and exalt you and magnify you that you astound us with your grace. We praise you that you humble the proud, that you have done a work, you have worked a salvation greater than anything we could imagine or conjure up. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you fulfilled Psalm 89 that you are the king who is laid low to the dust. We praise you that you fulfilled Isaiah 53, that you were pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. You bore the sin of us. We pray that if there are any here who have not trusted in Christ, that they would do so. We pray that for all of us, we would adore you, Lord Jesus, as our king and savior. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.